Hello, I am Joel McLeod. And I'm Roland Tanner. And welcome to the 905. A while back, we sat down with Tim Gray, Executive Director for Environmental Defense Canada. At the time, it was to discuss their interesting notion to sue the provincial government over the questionable Greenbelt deals which were happening. Little did we know that the reality behind the Greenbelt swaps would prove to be one of the biggest scandals in Ontario and even possibly Canadian history. As this summer progressed, more layers and information surrounding the Greenbelt scandal have come to light. Each new revelation adds a new level of corruption to this ongoing story, and we are only starting to see the bigger picture. The Greenbelt story is moving fast, and this episode is sort of an example of that. Last week, Environmental Defense alongside EcoJustice announced that they would be taking further legal action to sue the government to find out what further information they had surrounding the Greenbelt scandal. When we saw the notice, we immediately reached out to ask Tim Gray, Environmental Defense's Executive Director, to come on to the podcast, and he graciously agreed. The day that we recorded the episode, Paul Calandra, the Ontario Minister of Housing, announced that the provincial government would be rolling back their orders, forcing municipalities in the 905 to expand their urban boundaries. As we try to keep up to speed with what's going on in Ontario development news, it's important to remember that it is grassroots organizations, such as Environmental Defense, as well as stellar reporting by independent journalism like the Narwhal, that is driving this story. To that end, we welcome to the podcast Tim Gray, Executive Director for Environmental Defense. This is his second time on the podcast. Tim has over 25 years of experience working on environmental policy with a background as a biologist and policy analyst. Tim joins us today. Okay, thank you uh, to Tim Gray from Environmental Defense for coming back to the to the 905er. Uh, I guess a bit of a follow-up of our previous episode where we were talking about your legal action against the provincial government concerning the Green Belt. Uh, since that episode, a lot has come to light uh, surrounding that topic. Uh, and yet you're not letting your legal action uh, fall by the wayside. And that's why we want to talk to you. You've kind of re relit the fire underneath that. And I'm wondering if you can just share with our listeners uh, how what what's going on with that and why you're you're pushing this forward again. Yeah, well, good timing for today. Um, as you probably uh, well, people will know by the time they hear this, uh, the you know the minister made an announcement today that they're going to be reversing the, the boundary expansions that they imposed on Hamilton and many other cities. Um, all of these sprawl-inducing, destructive um, expansions onto farmland, forests, wetlands, etc. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, uh, of course, will be watching the legislation they're promising, uh, bring it forward. And if they do reverse all of the sprawl, then our lawsuit will no longer be needed. But the reason we went ahead with it was to achieve exactly what the minister is announcing today, which is to have all of this sprawl reversed. Um you know, we know that we need to build homes inside of our towns and cities. We know that that's the uh, the best thing in terms of securing the housing supply that we need to make it affordable, to make it so that people can get from um, where they live and work um, back and forth across town to services, et cetera, more easily, avoid cars and gridlock. So, um, 
you know, imposing massive uh, low density sprawl on the cities throughout the greater Golden Horseshoe made no sense and was counter to all of the planning that we've been trying to do in this province probably for the last 25 or 30 years. Um, so it, it's really, really important that it that it be stopped and be reversed. Mm-hmm. That's what our lawsuit was fundamentally about. Uh, the the fact, I guess, just so we're all listeners and all of us are on the same page, uh, we're recording this on the Monday that uh, uh, the provincial government announced that it was going to be rolling back the boundary expansions that they had imposed on Halton, uh, Hamilton, and a number of other uh, 905 uh, municipalities, um, which seemed to be a complete 180 from what they were said they were going to do earlier. And I mean, it got my it got my my kind of my memory jogging there, and I thought this would make basically we're back to square one, aren't we, with development under this government? I mean, they've they've pretty much essentially rolled back every one of their major pol- uh, policies on development. And I think with this one, this is kind of we're we're almost back to to where where, where we were in uh, when they were first election elected back in 20, 2015, I believe. We could be. I mean, I think we're we're partway there. Um, one of the the concerns that we have, both with the greenbelt reversals and also with this, is that you know the the, the minister has made uh, Minister Calandra has made comments that make it sound like maybe they're going to start the process again and you know try and keep the it cleaner, so to speak, because we know how not clean the 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 one that they ran both on the green belt and these expansions was from the you know, integrity commissioner and the and the auditor general's reports. But the um, the concern is that the you know the the substance of the changes they might come back at them again and um, and try and paper that over with a process that you know isn't so clearly influenced by particular developers and and getting particular properties designated. But the core of what they're doing here, um, even if it was done cleanly, is still very deeply regressive. Um, the idea that um, a path forward for housing supply, sustainability, competitiveness for the Greater Golden Horseshoe um, is a 1950s highway first followed by sprawl model uh, is fundamentally flawed. So in addition to making these reversals on these boundary expansions and, and the Greenbelt attack, they need to revisit their plans to get rid of the growth plan, to gut the Planning Act, to remove all of the protections for wetlands, to remove the powers of conservation authorities, um, to weaken density requirements, um, because as you know, part of the changes they've made to the, the growth plan and the Planning Act um, removed the requirements to build more densely inside of our existing towns and cities, therefore just encouraging more and more sprawl. So the entire policy direction um, needs to be reversed and we need to move forward um, with heavy investment in building affordable homes inside of towns and cities. And, and that means both addressing some of the barriers to building market housing, so barriers that stop developers and others with private capital from building affordable rental housing and, and, and market purchase housing, but also get to get back into the game of actually having governments build housing. Because the deeply affordable stuff that we need for people at the lower end of the income spectrum, that is never going to appear um, as a result of the market. The fact that we don't have any is a market failure, and we're not going to solve market failure by asking the market to fix it. It's just not going to happen. 
and uh, everyone knows that. So they need to take the money that they're wasting on um, pro sprawl policies, like trying to build this $10 billion highway 413 uh, that's going to go from Milton to north of Brampton and the other Bradford bypass, which is going to go through the Holland Marsh and instead focus this money on uh, public infrastructure, like public transit, but also build houses for people that can't possibly afford them in any other way. Um, and then we'd start to see some real solutions to uh, housing affordability uh, emerge and our cities being developed in a way that is going to make them prosperous in the future. I mean, that, that sounds like many, many uh, good ideas that, that we've heard, heard over the years. And, and indeed was kind of the focus of the, of the, regardless of which party was in government was kind of the focus of the intensification objectives that have been in place really for much of the last two decades this government obviously moved away from that i mean do you think do you think there's any real chance that this government w would ever say hey you know what we're going to invest a load of money in in, in actually building uh, public uh, housing um or encouraging municipalities to get into the into the building projects or, or i mean or is this simply a case of this is what you should do um let's be real here this isn't going to happen with these guys well, you know, I I think that um, government can change. I mean, I think if we were having this conversation two months ago, you know, there would have been a lot of folks would say, well, they're never going to re reverse the green belt attacks. They're never going to reverse these boundary expansions. Um, and in fact, of course, the premier doubled down on the on the green belt stuff by saying, oh, you didn't like the fifteen properties with the guy. Well, we're going to run a process to maybe you know take out eight hundred, but. You can only stand up to so much um, public outrage as, as a government, and in particular for both the Greenbelt and the boundary expansions, the manner that which it's done has attracted huge scrutiny in terms of the, the, the way that it was done, the, the, the influence peddling by uh, developers. And of course, there's a criminal investigation now underway uh, by the RCMP. So that you know kind of doubled down on it but um you know i think that if this government was willing to listen to where municipalities want to go listen to where the public wants to go to look at actually the market trends of what kind of housing is being purchased um that they would recognize that we very much need to move in the direction of greater density uh, inside of our towns and cities Relative to uh, most European cities, for example, we have very, very low density in, in most of our cities. Places like Hamilton in particular are so um, ready to have revitalization occur in major parts of the downtown core, especially the areas that will be serviced by the LRT once it's up and running. Um, massive, massive opportunities to uh, recreate uh, and enhance an already great city, but to really return it to uh, the kind of vigor that I think people in Hamilton really want to want to see. Um, some of our newer post-war suburbs are going to take a lot more work. Um, these were built to be car dependent and building the the proper density and transit infrastructure to make them work properly and to uh, you know, return a, a quality of life to people who live there is going to take a lot more investment. Hamilton's actually kind of lucky. It's uh, it has a, 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 a historical urban form 
that can be revitalized much easier than some of the post-war suburbs where we have. It's, I mean, actually, literally as someone who's who moved from one part of the 905 to Hamilton, um, yeah, that's very much what strikes me, is that Hamilton has that pre-auto age infrastructure in place because it predates the auto age and it makes things a lot easier, certainly in, in, in the kind of... Um, in the old city uh, mm-hmm. below the mountain, um, it, it makes things so much easier uh, in terms of uh, of getting around and creating a, a less car-dependent culture. Um, the the other question that that struck me was was you know well to play to play slightly devil's advocate, but also to sort of advocate for advocate for a perspective which I, which I think is very common in in a lot of nine hundred five cities, which is well, we're, we're we're damned one way and we're damned the other. We're against sprawl. We don't want um, to lose our green spaces, but we're also quite uneasy about the idea that if it's not sprawl, then it has to be high rises. It has to be that we have to kind of give up uh, every downtown to 30, 40 story buildings. Um, isn't there kind of a, a middle ground here uh, uh, that we could find um, that increases density, but but ends you know we, we end up with a city more like Edinburgh than than, than Manhattan uh, to simpl- oversimplify. I appreciate, but uh, I mean, is that kind of what we're looking at now? That basically we're, now we're back to the the what some would call overdevelopment of of um, previously su- suburban downtowns. Uh- Absolutely. I mean, I think there is a, a really interesting and compelling way forward. Um, this government has, you know, we haven't talked about that so much, but they've also been very, very much in favor of uh, you know, massive tower development around particular transit nodes, for example, which in some place makes sense. But if you think of like where the opportunity really lies, it is in all that um, building type kind of between the towers and the individual 4,000 square foot home on farmland. Um, you know, some people call this like the missing middle sometimes. But if you think of like the neighborhood that I live in, I live in downtown Toronto and in, in Little Italy. And uh, there are apartment buildings on my street from like the turn of the 19th, the 20th century up until about late 1930s, early 1940s. Beautiful buildings, maybe 20 apartments in them, four floors, um, you know, taking up, I, I'm, I, live in, I live in a semi but take up a lot that would be equivalent of, you know, me and my neighbors, you know, right to the back alley, but beautiful, beautiful buildings that fit into the neighborhood. But those have been prohibited by zoning uh, probably since about the 1950s. I don't know the exact date, but uh, the density that you could build in these downtown neighborhoods with, you know, cha- just changing those rules or making it so that if you live in uh, North York or in Richmond Hill or in Newmarket, that those kind of buildings could go into these, single-family home neighborhoods, um, you know, suddenly you start to get densities that would support public transit. So then you can out, have buses. And when you get enough of it, then you can have things like LRTs. And it's also enough people. You can have a local coffee shop you can walk to. You can have a grocery store in the corner. Uh, none of those things are possible if you don't have enough people living in a, in a particular area. And then, of course, what you end up with as a result is complete car dependency where you can't get a single service um, within walking distance of your house and you're forced to drive absolutely everywhere, which is the situation that exists in a lot of places, but also what uh, the, the current government wants to build. They see that as the future, is that we're going to build a lot more of that. And clearly it's terrible for the people who um, live there and the costs are very, very high uh, if you're car dependent. Like think of a two-family 
uh, you know, two income earning house, you know, if people aren't working at home and you're looking at like $20,000 a year per person to maintain that, that vehicle with payments and insurance and gas and stuff. So these costs are real. Uh, they're additive to the cost of, of buying a home and those can be eliminated uh, if we build, uh, build differently. And of course, we actually get to keep some farmland as well, because <laughs> it's a very finite uh, resource in this country. And uh, not sprawling means we actually have more places to grow food. I wanted to maybe just take a step back and, and go a little bit higher on uh, and look at the, the housing crisis that we're all in in the country. And it seems to me that we're coming kind of part of my, my euphemism, but like a come to Jesus moment on the fact that the way that we've been building our our cities and our communities has to stop. Um, and I, 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 as you're talking to me, I was thinking of, of uh, a comment that we heard Doug Ford say at one of his Ford Fests this last summer of, we're going to have, you know, beautiful home, $500,000 home with the white picket fence that anybody can buy. And that's what they're going to tr- get built in province. And I saw a lot of critics, myself included, was just like, how is this possible in today's market? And where where are we going to build these these homes? And I'm wondering if it's just a matter of that, like, is that notion just a, that going the way of the dinosaurs? It's just that we have to start thinking of how the Dino Five communities are going to be built in the, for the future for our our children's generation to buy to to live here. Yeah, I mean, I think that. Um... You know, there's not going to be an end to people living in you know single-family homes, um, but I think that we're going to need to increase the supply of more urban housing forms, townhouses, stacked townhouses, uh, two-bedroom, three-bedroom condominiums or rental apartments. Um, you know, many of these uh, bedroom communities are established after the war, especially the older ones. You think of like older areas of Richmond Hill or Scarborough. Um, they're uh, heavily populated by the boomer generation. Uh, many of them living in, uh, you know, singles or, or um, in, in single individuals or couples living in large houses where they would actually like to, to move into something else, right? They'd like to live in, in some other uh, type of housing that wasn't so big, didn't require so much maintenance, but they can't because there's nothing available. So they have to leave their community or their city to find housing or stay put. If you started investing in having more uh, variety of housing so that that massive cohort of people had somewhere else that they could live, that's literally tens of thousands of single family homes in the older suburbs that would be freed up uh, for other people to buy. So it's not like, you know, there was not going to be, you know, four bedroom houses for people to live in. It's that um, because they, they make so much money for developers is that they really want to drive, um, the market to be that that's the only thing that's supplied. I mean, th- this this idea uh, that we have, it seems in this province, or if you listen to the premier, is that there's like just kind of this infinite choice. And the reason that we buy these or that we build these like massive single family homes on farmland is because that's what everyone wants. But there's not an open market for housing. You as an individual either buy from, you know, a condo corporation or from a big uh, tract home developer. It's not like any of us are going out in Southern Ontario, buying a chunk of land, hiring an architect and a builder and building our own house. That's just not the way the market operates. So they make piles of money by building in urban areas, these very small, either bachelor or one bedroom apartments. 
or uh, out in farmland building gigantic uh, monster homes. And unless there's some kind of regulatory intervention, um, they're going to just try and, and maximize the profit. So we, we actually have to make it clear what is acceptable to be built because housing is more than just a commodity. People literally die on the streets if they're not housed, especially in a place where it's minus 20 in the winter. So we actually have to think about housing in a bit of a different way than it's just like a market commodity like bananas. It's not. And um, government needs to uh, recognize that. Actually, just raises a really good point that I don't think we've mentioned before on this podcast. I think it's worth just highlighting is that you know, in the pa- again in the past and in other countries, uh, large houses uh, for big families, wealthy families, uh, you know, grown ups, if you like, were built in downtown areas uh, and they would often be terraced. So you would have a terraced large house downtown, which would have a garden. So I'm thinking again of just places where I've lived, say in Edinburgh, where you'd have a a large um, terrace of houses uh, owned by very wealthy people who chose to live there rather than in the, the suburbs, that's for sure. And they would have a garden. They would. Ha- it wouldn't be vast, but they would have a garden. It was often across the street. You would, uh, or there would be a shared park area that sometimes belonged to a private group. I'm not saying that's a wonderful situation necessarily, but you know, you could have all the advantages. But if you if you have two or three children, uh, yeah, what's your choice? You can't live in a bachelor pad. Uh, in a in a new build, you're gonna go for the single family home because that's what gives you the space that you need for your family. Um, so I, I think it's just something that hasn't sort of properly struck me before. So uh, yeah, I just thought it was worth uh, highlighting. Um, I had another point and it escapes me, but it will come back to me, Joel. <laughs> I, I, I I do. Um, I, I there's something I did want to touch upon because uh, this. Kind of bring back to the green belt. The uh, the green belt scandal is such qu- quickly unfolding, and it, like it just seemed when we when we first had you on, the notion of oh you were going to take the court the the province to court to find out what was going on, that seemed quaint <laughs> at the time, and now now we're getting just this it's an onion. There's a new layer. Somebody else had their hand in the pie uh, on on this enrichment deal, and I'm. Right now, as we're recording this on uh, on Monday, October twenty third, folks, and today, this morning, it came out that it'll turn Leuna, one of Doug Ford's big supporters, uh, and that was a he got a big endorsement from Leuna in the last election. Uh, the executive assistant to the president owned property that was released from the green belt uh, uh, by this government. And there's a you know, it looks like the, this is happening, and the reason I'm bringing it up is I wonder. Organizations such as environmental defense, other environmental watchdog groups, other citizen groups, and this might be unfair to ask you to speak for them, but I will anyways. Do you folks have any trust in this government now that we seem to have forced them to roll back a lot of the a lot of the, the decisions and the policies that they implemented? Where you forced them to roll them back under public scrutiny? It's clear the public does not want them moving forward on this, but they still we still have two years left in their mandate, and. They're presumably going to put something forward for the housing file. Do you trust them to do the right thing on the on this anymore? 
Well, I mean, we've seen the the premier and and, and ministers uh, reverse themselves multiple times on on the Greenbelt file for sure. So I think um, you know trust is probably no longer an, an appropriate um, word for interactions with this government on on uh, anything to do with housing or environmental protection. I mean, I think you know the proof is going to be in the pudding on a day-to-day basis. Um, you know, they are have introduced legislation to return the green belt takeouts to the green belt. They're saying they're going to introduce uh, legislation to reverse all the boundary expansions. We'll be pushing for legislation to reverse all of the attacks on on planning and and um, wetland protection, etc. So. Uh, we have to actually see action, and uh, it needs to be done in a way that's transparent and clear, and that the outcome is something that uh, the public is demanding. Um, on the influence side, uh, the uh, you know the, the links between some of the land speculators, or in this case, uh, a union you were mentioning, and government decision making. I mean, that really does get into the realm of. Uh, breach of trust by public official, which is what the RCMP are investigating as part of their their criminal investigation. Not my area of expertise. You know, I know a lot more about planning and city design than I do about like you know who's going to get charged and when with uh, those kind of things. But uh, clearly, it's of uh, you know a lot of what we've seen coming from the Auditor General and the Integrity Commissioner causes a lot of concern, and that obviously is translated into the department of the RCMP that specializes in, in political crime uh, now investigating uh, these circumstances. So we'll have to see what happens there. But I mean, it just comes down to a matter of trust. I mean, would you would you sit down at the table with Minister uh, Calendra or or anybody to, to talk about how to ensure uh, this, any new housing projects are done in an environmentally safe, sound manner? Uh, or to talk about how to make more li- make our cities more livable and and con- conducive to a twenty first century lifestyle. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, we would uh, we would talk with the government anytime that they would uh, be willing to talk with us around um, the appropriate way forward on these issues. They've had uh, uh, no interest in, in doing that uh, over the last several years. But if they ever change their mind, you know, happy to happy to sit down and chat about it. Well, I will consider that an open invitation to uh, any progressive conservative members who might be listening uh, to this podcast. So take note, folks. It, it really comes back, and I think we might have discussed this the last time we spoke to you, uh, how um, policy in this government has, well, two aspects of this government. First, the, the policy has tended to be uh, come forward with, with almost no consultation, with almost no kind of prior warning was certainly not mentioned in any uh, party platforms, uh, no, no consultation with the public, no consultation with stakeholders, no consultation with groups such as such as environmental defense or anybody else for that matter. And this is why, actually, although it can often seem annoying uh, and it can seem that it slows the process down, this is why you do that, so that you don't end up with a humiliating capitulation and a reverse of every policy that you've come forward on something. And I've said a few times since 2018 that the one good thing about this government is is that they, when they when 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 the metaphorical whatever hits the metaphorical fan, uh, they will reverse their positions because they the 
they are they are not particularly string at stick strong at sticking to their guns. That's the one thing you can say. They will reverse. They will turn around and, and undo what they've done rather than risk being unpopular. But I mean, again, I maybe could just comment on that on that point that you know, policy that's done on the back of an envelope and then dropped uh, from a great height. Um, this is what happens. Um, this is why you need to consult. Uh, perhaps you could just say something along uh, on that point. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you don't uh, care what the evidence says, if you don't care what the data says, if you don't care what the professionals uh, have to say about um, issues around planning, what municipalities have to say, what um, the needs are of the population, and you're only talking to uh, your friends, uh, as the Premier describes them, who have a very narrow private interest in a particular approach to planning and building, then you're likely to make some mistakes. And um, then, of course, at some point, this like realization, I guess, occurs, which is that, oh, right, yeah, we got elected by the people of Ontario. We're supposed to be representing the public interest, not narrow private interests of our friends. And it starts to become a real problem because you haven't thought about any of that because you didn't really care, apparently. Um, so eventually it catches up with you. Um, you know, if you've done it in an incredibly reckless way, which they've done it, um, it's not just that people are angry about it or that it's bad public policy. Uh, in this case, they've, they've pursued it in a way that, um, you know, clearly is corrupt in the kind of classic definition of it, whether it's criminal or not, we'll see. So, you know, that of course then makes it even harder um, for individual MPPs to like, you know, go back to their constituencies because even the people who don't know, know very much about planning, don't care too much about whether we lose farmland or whether we build cities that are look like they were from 1961. Um, even the folks who don't care about that um, get irritated about the corruption side. So yeah, I think that there is a, a path out of this for them, but uh, they're gonna need to change their ways but the fact that they are w willing to reverse at some point um, may help them survive. But at some point, I mean, this government just, I think part of the problem that we have with the housing file across, not just the 905, but across countries, that things, people have a sense that things aren't getting done. And and the action, I guess that my my point is the further we kick this can down the, down the road, whether it's to... Uh, to revisit policy decision after policy decision, but not, ultimately not shovels aren't getting in the ground, and we're not actually building the the house that we need. It just makes this this problem infinitely worse. Um, it, that's yeah, that's just kind of my my point on the on the on the file at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true, and you know the. The provincial government was pretty convinced that they could just use the existence of the housing crisis to do whatever they wanted for the people that they were connected with. They could just say, you know, we're knocking down everything. We're knocking down the walls. We're going to wreck everything. But it's because there's a housing crisis and this is going to build houses for you. But now we know that it wasn't for that. It was just that the, the crisis was a convenient excuse to, uh, you know, give all kinds of, of presents to the folks that they're very close to. Mm -hmm. Um but to actually solve it um, is going to require both the uh, focused attention of the provincial government and the federal government as well. Municipal, municipal governments, of course, are kind of already there, but their resources are, are limited. 
But the federal government, provincial government on land, they have uh, huge financial resources at their disposal. They have the ability to change tax laws. They have ability to set up particular uh, co-ops like we used to back in the 90s. There's all kinds of things that both of those levels of government can do, both here and then in other provinces. The question is, is are they going to do it? Um, I think the political consequences of not addressing the housing crisis, though, um, are, are going to be very apparent. I mean, I think the federal government is at huge risk in the upcoming election if they're seen to be on the wrong side of this issue. And I think this government, after having said that they did all kinds of horrible, unpopular things to solve the housing crisis, if it, we get to 2026 and, and there's no change in housing affordability or housing supply in places where people need the houses, people are going to remember that, especially after they've been told that all of these horrible decisions were to build houses. Now, I mean, actually, you mentioned the federal government, and um, I, I believe something that we talked about with you the last time you were on again, and, and certainly we, 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 we spoke to Jennifer Keesman a few weeks ago, she mentioned, um, it's mentioned by multiple people, um, as like, if you could do one thing to, to ease the um, affordability crisis, what would it be? Uh, and that was to uh, reduce the, um, the taxation on new builds, the, the tax that developers of um, rental accommodation have to pay um, as part of their costs. Uh, and the uh, federal government announced that it was going to uh, eliminate that costs on rental builds and some of the provinces um i'm not sure if ontario is one of them um Paris says they will yeah i said okay they're going to match that and take off the pst is that i mean it, it kind of got buried under all the other things that have been happening in the news lately um including what, what what the province is up to but of course the rest of the world um is that is that as much of a game changer as as um, some people have suggested? It seems to be. Um, you know, most of the commentary that I've seen coming from the development industry and people that you know work close in the with them in the planning world, people like Jennifer Keesmat and others, um, you know, really do think that it is going to make a significant difference in in decisions around investment in in uh, rental housing. I think it's part of it. Um, another part that uh, is often talked about is a return to the tax structures that it used to exist back in the 70s that would allow you to carry forward profits from one building into the next one, right, which they eliminated. And you can really see that, you know, I don't know if it's just correlative. It seems more more uh, more predictive than that. Uh, you see that just the change from uh, rental buildings in the 70s to condos as soon as they change those laws. So that that's part of it. Um I think the end of exclusionary zoning in cities, as we were talking about, is absolutely key uh, to get some of these uh, mid-sized buildings put into neighborhoods within existing downtown neighborhoods that are already well-serviced and are inherently more affordable for people because of where they're located. And then on the deeply affordable, affordable side, um, government's going to actually have to build these things, either donate the land and have uh, you know, market build the, build the housing, because, of course, land costs are a huge part of it in these big cities, um, or some and other mechanisms to uh, deliver housing for people at the lower end of the income uh, spectrum. You know, we, we've, it's got it so far to hand now that, uh, you know, only the top two or three percent of income earners if you don't have wealthy parents uh, a big chunk of capital or selling a house you already owned can actually get into the market mm -hmm. you know most of the people that are making very very good incomes in toronto 
would not qualify for a mortgage with the current interest rates and and their income. So that is totally not sustainable for our society that, you know, people making $250,000 a year can't, can't buy a house. Like, that's insane. <laughs> you, you keep bringing back to the, the notion of, of, not notion, the, the, the idea of governments actually building affordable housing rental properties. And it strikes me that we seem to be approaching the housing crisis with two different philosophies in mind on, on the, uh, I'm going to say the progressive side of the equation, people want to see government getting, getting involved, like shovels in the ground, putting funding behind actual building projects. And then you have the, the, on the, those on the right, more conservative, small C conservative thinking of government needs to get out of the way that, that kind of Reagan-esque idea of government cannot solve this because government is just going to make the problem worse. Where do you see yourself in that? Or where, where, where would you see yourself in that kind of equation of how do we solve that? Is it just get out of the way and let the market take care of it? Or do we actually have to start putting our backbone into it and build the, build the things ourselves at some point? Yeah, I think you have to look at the, the evidence. Like government got out of... Um, building homes in the 90s so we've had a 30-year run of letting the market solve it and now there's no affordable homes so i think we can see that letting uh the market provide um hasn't worked for us so unless we just want to say well it's because we haven't let it work long enough or you know if we just wait another 30 years maybe some uh, housing will magically appear uh, i think that's unlikely I think like most problems, there's probably a mix here of uh, need for government involvement, both in terms of tax law, regulation, uh, setting the playing field um, to encourage uh, the market to perform as best as it can. And then for the parts of society that can't be reached by the market, and because housing is so expensive now, significant portions of our population are not going to be housed um, in any foreseeable way by the market. So government has to get back into the business of providing housing for for those people, preferably in a manner that uh, is mixed, is co-op oriented, leads to home ownership, addresses some of the things we've learned about government housing and the negative stereotypes associated with that. There are models that have worked really well where government is involved in housing without it becoming housing that um, uh, isn't looked after, isn't is becomes poor quality and and dependent on ongoing government support. But there are yeah. models, and, and we used to use them, and we stopped. It's, I mean, I, I grew up in a town, well, my, most towns in Britain would qualify as this, but, but certainly my town was 50% uh, of the housing, something like that. In terms, of, Certainly in terms of area, about 50% of the available housing in the area that I grew up was government-built housing, municipal housing, rented housing. Uh, it wasn't all perfect. Uh, I'm not going to claim it was perfect, it was of a decent standard. It was um, it was basically good. You weren't going to grow up with rickets or lung disease or, you know, there was basically good sound housing. Um, pretty dense housing as well. Um, again, <laughs> built in an age where everybody assumed that the working class people would never own a car. So <laughs> it became a bit of a problem in the 70s. But but anyway, you know, like I say, not perfect, but, but basically good. And also not a financial drain on the municipalities who owned and operated that housing. Um, it, you know, people who live in those houses pay rent. Uh, it may be uh, 
a modest rent, but it's rent. Uh, uh, it, it's part, uh, but the, the rules here work so much against that kind of situation. I, I, you know, a municipality can't say, we want to build 20,000 houses. Um, can we get a bank loan, please? You can't do that. Um, so right there, it's game over for any kind of major development, uh, unless the law changes. Um, I mean, how big of a change would we need, not just in kind of, sort of our kind of ideological outlook, but in, in just the, the legal basis to, to, to allow that kind of development to happen? Yeah, we would need changes uh, for sure. And uh, I think the both the provincial and the and the federal governments have the authority to make these kind of changes uh, in particular the province you know, most of the authority around um, building uh, and land and planning is provincial um, the federal government obviously has tax law under its control and uh, you know the, the the ability to spend because it collects the lion's share of, of income taxes um, so it can bring that to bear. Um, both the province and the federal government are big landowners, which makes um, building some of this kind of housing more possible. Um, and then, of course, they both have the ability to, to legislate models that would be workable, co-op models, other things that um, make it more affordable, and to, to do things like backstop um, loans. I mean, they, they both uh, have access to huge amounts of capital and agencies whose job it is to um, you know, make that capital available at, at low risk and, and, and low interest rates if they decide to. So it's clearly, um, you were mentioning the UK, you know, we have some good examples in Finland and other parts of the world where uh, huge portions of, of housing are in fact built by government and, uh, and in some cases you know, continue to be run by government uh, with, with tenants in them. So it, on a, on a separate note, I mean, my understanding is that in Germany, which you know, pretty wealthy country, the the kind of default uh, they have a much higher rental uh, percentage of the population that rents than buys. So it's not it's kind of well, you're grown up now. Have you bought your house yet? Mm -hmm. uh, kind of outlook, which um, I have to say, as as sort of viewing the the condominium model in North America versus just renting, I think I'd rather rent than have a condo. <laughs> But that's another story. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if we need to, you know, question some basic assumptions. Do we need to own? What are the advantages of owning? Sure, you own something, but I don't know. Uh, is there any any sort of value in in that kind of question? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you have multi-generational renting that occurs a lot in European cities. I have a you know, friend in Paris whose grandmother, uh, you know, the apartment he has was his grandmother's apartment starting in the 1930s, right? So, um, you know, this happens and is very, very common. You know, I think here, you know, in particular over the last, say, 25 years, there's been such a conversion of, of housing into being a commodity and uh, so much conversation about it as being a place that you are being a vehicle to make a lot of money that uh you know housing you know stopped being what it was when i was a kid which is that you know you built a house you know to live in you didn't have this idea that that was going to be your income source mm -hmm. um you look to savings and, and other uh, mechanisms of wealth creation and generation to provide your income because the idea was you would live in your house and that it was not a commodity and uh, 
and of course the ho the ho housing market wasn't escalating at, the, at, at such a huge pace uh, that it is now. So we're living in a in a in a world where uh, a lot of what we've seen in the marketplace is a result of that commodification, I think, and this run resulting run on on housing prices um, that have just taken them to a level that has skewed the market so much. I just remembered. Um, I know we're coming to the end, and, and yeah. I, I just remembered the point I wanted to make earlier, and I'm just going to uh, indulge me for a second. <laughs> uh, you mentioned at one point the kind of um, uh, the sort of the big sort of McMansions that do get built in single-family home neighborhoods, uh, and you know, there's that irony that you can build a big McMansion, uh, but you can't build. A building should be, you know, in terms of footprint, would probably be ident identical, uh, which would house three families. You'll never get that passed, uh, and that actually goes to the issue of of um, uh, uh, oh, blimey, I've just forgotten the name. The the uh, the uh, uh, committees of adjustment, committees of adjustment. Um, do you have any thoughts on committees of adjustment? I have a bee in my bonnet about them, and and need for them maybe to be radically reformed or abolished um do you have any thought about the role that they currently have played in in kind of acting as a barrier to any kind of sensible development in established neighborhoods well we run into a lot you know here in toronto with our work around trying to end exclusionary zoning you know the, the kind of nimby phenomena like quite often people will show up at those kind of places as uh you know kind of the first time they see a new development proposal and um you know, we've seen a lot where people kind of bring forward uh, environmental concerns that aren't particularly environmental and, you know, quite often we will show up and just say, well, we actually, you know, work in an environmental organization with kind of deep policy knowledge here and there's not environmental concerns <laughs> about this project. But yeah, I think that has been a, um, you know, a, a locus of, of, of resistance there to changing neighborhoods. Um, and I think that is why that, a lot of the changes we need need to be put in place so they're done by right um, so that you don't have to go through like individual applications like you know the example i was giving in my neighborhood we need to change it so that if you want to build a uh you know three or four story 20 unit building on a property in my neighborhood uh you should be able to do it um you know it's it's different if uh you know, somebody's going to build like a 30 story building in the middle of a, of a single family residential neighborhood. And, you know, half the houses would be in eight hours of shade every day. Right. That's, that's a complete change of the character of the neighborhood. But if you have three story houses in the neighborhood and you're going to build a three story apartment building that fits the character, but it's going to house 10 times as many people. You know, maybe that makes makes some sense. And the city has an overriding interest or the province has an overriding interest in making that possible, given what we're facing. Uh, I see that we're coming up on our on our time uh, with you, Tim. I do want to close off, kind of circle back to uh, to why why we had you on. And as this Greenbelt scandal in the provincial government, as it continues to unfold, your green, uh, sorry, environmental defense is, is very much in in the fight with uh, as you're taking legal action and whatnot i'm wondering to know what is that you're looking for going forward what what, what are you concerned about as you're seeing the, these developments happening or you know what what are, what are you keeping an eye on what are, what are you what are you looking to find out uh about 
or what want to clarify for your 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 sake yeah i mean we the outcome we want to see is a, is a, a move to building the kind of cities that are going to make sense for the people that live in southern ontario so these are cities that are denser uh serviced by public transit walkability services that you can get to a higher quality of life uh, greater productivity, et cetera. The things that we know uh, happen when cities are designed properly. First, the co-benefits of that are protecting the green belt, protecting farmland, having local food, higher air quality, water quality, all the good things that come with the ecosystem services that are not destroyed by paving them over with low density sprawl. Um, so there's a whole bunch of benefits that flow together. Um, that's the world that uh, I think you know many of us want to create. You know, with this government, I think, you know, uh, stage one is getting them to reverse some of the the uh, the attacks on this approach to to planning. The green belt was a big part of that. Um, boundary expansion is another. Next is to uh, reverse all of the policy and legislative changes that that um, mandate sprawl um, instead of encouraging the cities that we need. All right. Well, I think we're going to leave it at that for uh, for this episode. Thank you very much, Tim. Uh, best of luck with you on environmental defenses, legal action against the the provincial government. Clearly, you are you're getting you're making some traction uh, with this. So uh, we look f- we look forward to seeing what what comes next. Take care. Yeah. Thanks so much. That's it for this episode of the 905er. Thank you for listening. As always, you can send us your feedback, thoughts, and concerns, or ideas for future episodes to our email, info at 905er.ca. We'd love to hear from you. You can help us keep the 905er going by financially supporting us through Patreon as well as PayPal. Visit us at 905er.ca and click on the support tab. As well, links are in the show notes for your convenience. Lastly, you can find us on social media. Search for the underscore 905er on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. So long for now. See you next time. listeners i'm christy and i'm melissa and this is buried motives where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers she said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back and that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag yeah that's not even strong enough words this is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100%. Because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. 
Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth.